0: Let's pray. Oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Lord, may my words be true and in line with what your word says. May our minds be sharp and clear. May our hearts be soft. Lord, build your church in the most holy faith. Lord, I pray that you will save sinners today through your gospel. Oh, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. In the name of our blessed Lord, Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. That's a common phrase I use quite often. Whenever someone is going through a tough season at work or family, school, but there's a known ending to this season, we say there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We know that in the midst of a dark and scary and tumultuous place, you see that there's, the end is near. It's not going to be pitch black anymore. That saying means a lot to me because I often think about it in a literal sense. I hate driving over bridges and under tunnels. There's something about driving over water that gives me the creeps. And on the flip side, going, when you're going into a tunnel, it's usually under a body of water or through a mountain. And that's creepy as well. And if you have claustrophobia, it's the worst of the worst. It's torture. And if any of you drive through Mobile over to the eastern shore or back from the eastern shore, you get the worst of both worlds, bridges and tunnels, a bridge right over Mobile Bay that goes on and on and on. And then you go under a tunnel underneath the Alabama River, underneath water. So it's an awful drive for me. But there's a sense of relief when you cross that bridge over to the Eastern Shore or go under the tunnel, you're now into Mobile. There's a light at the end of that tunnel, or land at the end of the bridge. That's not the case for us in our journey to this first letter to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus. It's in this short book of the Bible, we've, seen, we've been on a marvelous bridge and through a magnificent tunnel. And as we finish today, we see the end of the tunnel as we get ready to head into the Christmas season in a couple weeks. But as we look through this final passage in First Timothy, we see a light at the end of that tunnel. We see Paul's warning of the scary bridge and creepy tunnel that Timothy and the church in Ephesus must not stay occupied and this bridge has pretty sunsets but if you stare at that sunset your car will coast down into that water this tunnel has beautiful artwork to gaze upon but if you do you will smash your car right into the car in front of you and be trapped in that tight and echoey tunnel But if we keep our eyes on the bright light of that end of that tunnel, that that is Christ and His kingdom and His gospel, we'll get to that destination and breathe that eternal sigh of relief. Our eyes in this fallen world continually drift towards so many distractions, and they can be fatal. So how do we keep our eyes on the light at the end of that tunnel? This morning, we'll complete our journey through 1 Timothy in chapter 6, in the latter part of verse 2 and through verse 21. So, in this last section of 1 Timothy, we'll see somewhat of a race or journey that we have as the community of Christ, the church. We'll see that our journey includes a, a casting off of the pursuit of false rewards and at the pursuance of a true reward. And this text will also answer for us how to go about this casting off and this pursuing our everyday Christian life. But first, the people of God must run the race of the gospel life by casting off all the pursuit of false rewards. So look with me at the end of verse 2 of chapter 6 through chap- uh, verse 10. Teach and urge these things. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You'll notice that Paul connects these two sections of this letter with teach and urge these things. That's actually the latter part of verse 2. Teach and urge these things. What is Paul talking about here? Well, all that he's laid out so far in this letter And it probably includes all that what Paul had taught Timothy as his disciple. Now, verse three through ten show the, the contrast to solid teaching. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, he is filled with conceit and pride and is an ignoramus. What then is this different doctrine? Well, it's that which that is not in accordance with Christ's apostles' teaching, and that which is not aimed at further godliness or Christ-likeness. For all solid teaching must be in line with what Christ and his apostles taught us, and the teaching's end goal must be conformity to Christ. It's not merely information transfer, but life transformation. And godliness is the product of solid teaching. So there's a, a practical aspect to it. The teaching just doesn't just end with head knowledge, but leads to a godly life. That is what we call orthodoxy, right teaching, and orthopraxy, right living. So what is it that these folks are teaching and what is the product? Well, they love controversial topics and arguments about obscure things. And what is the product of these discussions? It's not godliness, but it's jealousy and envy, anger and bitterness, name-calling, etc. Not exactly holy living. But why? Why? Why would they focus on these things? Why focus on controversies and conspiracy theories and obscure and mysterious topics? Aha, we see that in verse 5, why? Why? And there, verse 5 gives us a clue to why these folks teach these things. They do it for financial gain. This is what Paul's referring to, these things. They do these things to create a following. A following means much money. Think about this. Controversial topics that have no biblical bearing, an obscure... Mysteries tickle fancies. They sell books. They get many hits on social media. They sell out conferences. But if you teach just a plain and clear gospel, snooze, not much money in that. But hey, if you have a unique outline plan on end times prophecy, but for some reason no one has ever taught in church history, or seven biblical steps to financial wealth, or five God principles for the blessed life, you can have fame and fortune and influence. The love of money and pleasure is the root of this false teaching. The desire for an easy and self-indulgent life is the root of the love of money. And the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Look down at verse 9. In verse nine, you notice the problem is not being rich in and of itself. It's no sin to be rich and to have an abundance of resources. For for Paul later on in this passage gives instructions for the rich. And if you live in this part of the world, we are all relatively rich. So how do you define rich? You, you really can't. It's it's really difficult. It's all relative. And there are several godly people who we would consider wealthy, but their goal in life was not to accrue wealth. It just so happened that their career path or inheritance or business provided them with lots of resources. So riches in and of themselves are not sinful. However, the sin is the desire to be rich. Why would someone desire to be rich? wealthy, so they can live this self-indulgent life. Look at verses 9 through 10 again. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. These desires will kill you. They are a cancer to your soul. In verse 10, he says, because of the love of money that some have wandered from the faith, meaning they have rejected the teaching of Christ and the apostles. Why? Because there's no money to be had in that. The call to Christ is a call to suffer. The call to Christ is a call to modesty and self-denial, and they don't want any part of that. But does Christ just leave us in total poverty? Does he just abandon us in our needs? By no means. Again, in verse 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. He will provide us with food and clothing and shelter. For he told us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you and he clothes the grass, and he feeds the sparrow, how much more will he do for you? However, he didn't promise riches, and that's okay. And that is what contentment is, that we are satisfied in what Christ, what God has provided for us. And if he decides, decides to give more, great, praise God. And if he does not, that's okay. Praise God. We brought nothing into the world. Everything that we have is a gift. We cannot take anything out of the world. No material thing has, is eternal. Everything is fleeting. It's a vapor. If you're here today and you struggle with contentment, repeat, repeat this often to yourself. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. We brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. Don't invest your life in things that don't last. Money and fame are false rewards. And we in our fallen selves crave these things, yet they lead to misery and death, and they are encumbrances that we must shake ourselves from. Listen, money is not the problem. Our cravings for ease and indulgence is. Our discontentment in God and His provision is our problem. and That's it's all of us. It plagues all of us in our fallen nature. It is a hindrance to many coming to Christ, and it's a hindrance to our growth in the Lord. Think about commercials and and advertisements for a moment. Sales departments of of major corporations are, are brilliant. They're brilliant. They understand humanity better than most of us. They know how to pull on the heartstrings. Think about the products they sell. Think about their presentation of the products. They don't just say, this. Fill in the blank. It's a wonderful product. You know, it never bring you so much joy. Not really. They present their product as something you cannot live without. You're missing something in your life if you don't have it. You are an outcast in society if you don't have this product. Of course, they say it subtly, but that's essentially what they're getting at. They play on fallen humanity's discontentment. These sales departments know that all of us struggle with discontentment, and they portray their product as something that will fill that void. And then, two years later, you got something else that will fill that void. For these folks that Paul is talking about here in this section, discontentment was the motivation for their craving for controversy. The gospel was not enough. The fact that Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life that we couldn't, he died on the cross, bearing the punishment for our sin, was raised and will come again, this message was not enough for them. Is the gospel enough for you? Is knowing Christ rather being known by him enough for you? If you lose everything you have today, is He enough for you? You say, you say of course He is. We're just like Peter. Of course He is. But smash. Tragedies in life hit. The reality living in a fallen world hits. And make no mistake, God will put you in positions to where those words, those thoughts, those beliefs are tested. Well, you say Christ is enough. If all my ambitions in life are now down the tube, is Christ enough? Listen, even though we can't see it now, we can't see it now. Whatever we lose in this life is nothing compared to what we gain in Christ. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's as if Paul wrote that in another letter, right? The rewards in this life are trivial and fading, and many forsake the way of the Lord to get them. We forget that our Lord himself is the true reward. And that leads us to the next section in verses 11 through 21, where we learn that the people of God must run the race of the gospel life by laying hold of the true reward. Look at verses 11 through 21. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty Oh Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid their reverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you all. So after Timothy, after giving Timothy the warning of the folks that will pop up that will deceive many by appealing to their own fallen desires of fame and fortune and comfort. Paul changes course and gives them this final emotional charge. As for you, O oh man of God, flee these things. Flee the pursuit of riches and fame. And don't just flee, pursue. Don't just flee from, p- pursue to. Pursue what? Essentially the fruit of the Spirit, Christ-likeness. Again, snooze fest here. Godliness, faith, love, gentleness. That's boring. No. This this is your ambition, Timothy. This is your heart's desire, is it not? To desire Christ is, is to desire holiness. This is what you should crave. Your prayer every day should be, Lord, by your grace, make me holy as you are holy. And while you're at it, Timothy, keep fighting. Keep persevering. So listen, you don't tell these things to someone if the road is not hard and narrow. The Christian life is indeed hard. As G.K. Chesterton once said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Paul continues. Take hold of the eternal life that was promised you. And remember your confession in the presence of all. So most likely this is referring to Timothy's profession of faith through baptism. We celebrated baptism a couple weeks ago, and we will again next Sunday, Lord willing. And what do we do when we are baptized? We are confessing Christ as our Lord and Savior before many witnesses. I mean, I remember my baptism over 19 years ago. The confession I made before many witnesses. I hope you remember yours as well. Baptism is a big deal, just like Lord's Supper. We are saved by faith alone, and baptism is our public confession of that faith. Baptism is a one-time confession. The initial confession, if you will, and Lord's Supper is that that continual confession, that continual preaching of the gospel to the watching world. We confess Christ is Lord. We don't forget that Christ is Lord. And Paul reminds Timothy of that confession. And then he gives him this heavy charge. And this heavy charge is one Long, run-on sentence, jam-packed with gold. Look at verses 13 through 16 again. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So Paul charges Timothy with the stamp of approval of the Creator of all things and of Christ Jesus, who made the same confession of which Timothy and all of us made in our confession of faith, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is the truth. For Jesus told Pilate, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords as Paul ends this charge with a doxology. But again, what is this charge that comes from the being of whom none of us can even fathom? It's to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until Christ comes again. Okay, what commandment is he talking about here? What Paul's likely getting at here is, is the call to follow Christ in everything, rather than one, just one specific command. It's a command that encompasses them all. The command is to tr- the charge to keep the teaching in the life of the gospel, which has a familiar, uh, a similar wording in the statement, to guard the deposit. He is to keep his teaching in his life above reproach. Let no one be able to, to claim that you're teaching anything falsely or that your life is hypocritical. Now, no doubt, he will be slandered continuously as a follower of Christ. For Paul was continuously and unmercifully slandered throughout his life in Christ. However, he must not have any legitimate charges placed against his teaching in life. Pursue righteousness, Timothy, until Christ comes back. Guard the apostolic teaching in the church with exhaustive diligence until Jesus comes back. Skip down to verse 20. O Timothy, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you all. So Paul restates his charge. O Timothy, guard the deposit. Do you notice the emotion that's here? O Timothy, O man of God, O Timothy. Teach others to avoid you yourself, but teach others to avoid the silly teachings that have nothing to do with the gospel and godly living. It may have a a veneer of intellect and piety, but it is ignorance and wickedness. Teach them to pursue godliness, even the rich. (laughs) What is he talking about here? Look at verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that may take hold of that which is truly life. So how do the rich live godly lives? Lives in line with Christ? Lives in accordance with the gospel? Well, first we see here in verse 17 that they must know that all that they have is from God. They did not create it. You are not the creator of wealth. It was given to them. Well, next, their hope is to be in God, the giver of all good things, not in the riches that are here today and gone tomorrow. Lastly, they are to share their resources with their brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the good works that Paul is talking about here. The sentence flows from general to more specific. Do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. What does do good mean? Well, to be rich in good works. What does to be rich in good works mean? To be generous and ready to share. You realize that all God gave you is meant to be shared. He gave you, rich man, to, uh, an abundance in order for you to be a conduit of abundance. And that has to be the mentality of someone who has great resources, that has much. You see your brothers and sisters in Christ in need, and then you go fill that need. Instead of pursuing wealth, which is what Paul writes against here, you give away wealth. Not under compulsion, not under force, but out of the overflow of love for Christ and his people. Because Christ is our true reward. And if Christ is our true reward, we pursue righteousness because of the gospel. Christ and the life he gives is our true reward. Although material things are fleeting, they're here today, gone tomorrow, they are important. They're not unimportant. We need food and shelter. We need clothes. We need buildings to work in and jobs and everyday supplies. And having an abundance of them is not a problem either. It can be a temptation, but it is not in and of themselves the problem. So how's Paul teaching them how to to pursue righteousness through them? How do you live a life that gives an example to others that shows what it looks like to have Jesus as your true reward? Now, I myself, I'm not rich, nor have I ever been rich, nor will I ever be rich. However, I must admit I am a a stingy person. That's something I have to continually repent of. I'm, I'm not a sharer. My wife knows this firsthand, and so do my kids. What is mine is, is mine, from books to, to food to something as small as socks. Now, I, I, again, I, I'm not a seeker of many things. I don't desire to have lots of things, but what I have is mine, you best believe. That's not a trait that is good, and there's no excuse for that. How can I show that Jesus is my treasure and that I believe in the transience of material things when I have a white-knuckle grip on the things that I do have? So the problem is not the the many things. It's whether the things have you. Many of you share this same struggle as I do, don't you? You're not rich, but what you have you treat as if it is the treasure that's all to yourself. So for us stingy folks who say, well, I'm not rich, so uh, verses 17 through 19, they don't apply to me. They're not talking about me. Well, let's read it again. Again, riches are, are never defined, but haughtiness can describe all of us. Trust in things rather than the creator of all things plagues all of us. You don't have to be rich to be generous and share. So the way we view and use possessions reveals what, or rather who, we truly treasure, and who we view truly owns us. Now, as we close this first letter to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus, we see that the people of God must run the race of the gospel life, casting out All false pursuits, false rewards, and laying hold of the true reward. We fight the good fight of faith against the appeals of material hoarding. We take hold of the eternal life we have in Christ Jesus and being content in that. How do we do this? We remember our gospel. We remember what we confess every Sunday. And every day, for that matter. We remember what we confessed before many witnesses years ago. We remember that Christ died to redeem us. He rose and ascended into glory and will come again and reign here eternally in a redeemed earth. We remember that we are justified, declared righteous by God, by faith in Christ alone. And we know that we have forsaken our rebellion against Him and have received Him as Lord and when we realize that that is enough for me to be content to be content with my future in that then we will not find these false rewards appealing material possessions will be seen as resources to use rather than end goals to uh, end goals of joy when we think about God's eternal sovereign kingdom and that He always does what He wills, when He wills it, we can see the temporal accomplishments and the honorary titles as what they truly are as temporal: a fleeting vapor, a mist. We'll be here one day and forgotten the next. We remember that my God will supply all of my needs. When tempted to hoard, remember who owns you. When tempted to pursue fame and influence, to be an influencer and fortune. Remember who alone deserves honor and eternal dominion. If you're here today and you've never heard of Jesus in the gospel, or may have, but you really don't understand it, well, we today invite you to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord. He's the only one who can reconcile you to God. And him alone is the forgiveness of sin. To so call on him today to save you. Forsake following the path you are on and cling to him. Cling to his death and resurrection as your only hope. And he will save you. Yes, the road with him is long and hard. But he promises the forgiveness of sins justification, eternal life. He promises that to you to now, for all who call upon his name to be saved. So pray to him as we pray together in just a moment. Ask him to forgive your sin and confess him as Lord. Now our Lord desires his church to be steadfast in his gospel, to trust in him and him alone, the church's husband. Now, this this message doesn't bring popularity, it doesn't bring fame, it doesn't bring fortune. It's the same story that's been told for centuries, but it's our only hope. Christ is our only hope. And by knowing what is to come for us, for those in Christ, by knowing what is to come for us, we can be content in that reward. Because He is the reward. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, you are the Alpha and Omega, the Eternal One. Lord, stamp eternity on our eyes. Help us to taste and see that you are good. Help us to delight in you. Help us to use the things of this world rather than be used by the things of this world. For yours,